Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Tez My Best Teacher podcast with me, Dan Worth. Today's guest is legendary children's writer Michael Rosen, who's written or contributed to over 140 books during his career, with many now classics of the children's book genre, such as We're Going on a Bear Hunt. He spoke to Tez about his school days and the many memorable teachers he encountered during those years. And he tells us about his latest book, that chronicles his recovery from COVID and how he learned to walk again with his trusty NHS walking stick. And as a result, he's given the book the wonderful title, Michael Rosen's Sticky McStick Stick, The Friend Who Helped Me Walk Again. All that and lots more on the latest My Best Teacher podcast from Tez. Hi, Michael. Thank you for joining us for the My Best Teacher podcast. What an honour. How are you today? I'm good, actually. Yeah. It was a bit wobbly earlier in the week, but I'm having a non-wobbly day today, so it's good. Yeah, Excellent. Oh, that's that's great to hear. And hopefully that means, you know, podcasts and chatting about your school days and so all, all good stuff to, to delve into. So without further ado, I suppose we should go back to primary school. And, you know, I mean, do you remember it well? Is it, is it a sort of good, clear memory of that for you or is it all a bit hazy now? I remember it very well. In fact, uh, I had a little bit of a surfeit of primary schools because I went to a nursery school and two primary schools. Because I was born in the Bulge, um, that's to say I was born in 1946. Um, so I think what happened was at the end of the war, our parents uh, rediscovered each other, put it that way, <laughs> and uh, that was always very lovely. And so I was born almost exactly nine months after the end of the war. Right. And um, put that together, if you like. And so I went to Tyneholm Nursery School in Wealdstone. Then I went to Pinnerwood School uh, from the age of about four till seven. And then because we were the bulge, they opened up more schools uh, yeah. where I lived in, in Pinner. And uh, so I was a founder pupil of a school called West Lodge, West Lodge County Primary School, JMI, Junior Mixed Infants. And I not only remember them well, but I actually write about them quite a lot. So yeah. all sorts of scenes from my primary school times um, turn up in my, in my books or with my friends or indeed teachers. So yes, I remember all that very well. I can even remember that nursery school very well. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, do you, so many things to ask there, but I suppose, I mean, can you give us an insight on some of the things that you remember happening in those days that you have sort of used in your, in your stories or sort of, you know, teacher, teachers' characteristics and, you know, personalities? Yeah, so let's start with Tyneholm Nursery School. A, a big puzzle for my parents was every day when I got picked up and went home and sat talking to my parents was that I would turn to my parents and say, Gallica's got a big gas stove which seems like a quite odd thing for a child, yeah. you know, three and a half years old, four years old, whatever, three and a half, I think, saying. And they said, really? What is this? And they couldn't get out of me what this was, what I was saying. Well, what did this got to do with playing with an abacus or, you know, having your nap in the afternoon? <laughs> and then uh, I think my mum, who went into the nursery at the, on the, on, after a few days, in those days, parents were kind of left at the door and she said, my mum said to Miss Hornby, who I can remember very well, who I called Hornby teacher, and I think actually a long time ago in the TES, I cited her as my favourite teacher, who was by then Mrs. Forcer. Mm. And so if you look back in the archives of uh, the TES, I think you'll find Hornby teacher featuring. So anyway, Miss Hornby and my mum had a conversation. Mum said, Michael says, Gallica's got a big gas stove. And Hornby teacher said, come this way, Miss Hornby, and uh, took my mum into the kitchen. And there my mum met Mrs. Gillick, and there was indeed a giant gas stove which did all the cooking. And obviously, this was the thing that impressed me the most yeah. at nursery was not all the wonderful little games and toys that they put out for children, or the sand pit, or indeed the 
chimbley pot, as I called it, the chimney pot in the climbing frame. And I remember mum saying, what's a chimbley pot? And me explaining to her what a chimbley pot is. But the <laughs> thing that impressed me most was Gallica's got a big gas stove. So there we are, Mrs. Gillig's gas stove was the most important thing in my yes. first spell at nursery. Oh, that's wonderful. And yes, like I say, children, you know, it's like that classic easy, you buy them an amazing present and they, they prefer the box and the, the, the cardboard box that it comes in. It's very much like that. You say it's the, it's the small things or the, the strange things that, that impress us. Um, well, indeed. Yeah. In fact, there's a whole theory behind that. I think the person's name is Atkinson. And it's called loose parts theory. That's to say that the most wonderful things to play with are those are things that are loose, spare, that you can then improvise with and mm. put together and add things to. So it's loose parts theory. Indeed, right. In my case, it was the loose parts image of um, Mrs. Gillick's gas stove. Yes. And, and so you mentioned there, obviously, this teacher, uh, Miss Hornby, who... Uh, name changed subsequently. So and that was in the, that was in the nursery school that she was based. And so she's, but she is very much the person you consider your the best teacher. Well, your first it, it teacher was slightly almost. tongue in cheek, but yes. she was lovely, and I remember her very well. And she was very kind and caring. And in fact, we met up by letter um, for the last maybe ten years of her life, and we used to correspond uh, right. up until I think the early nineties. So she wrote to me, and I would write to her, and. I would remember another thing. I would remember, say, somebody called Jimmy, and she'd say, oh, yes, Jimmy, I remember Jimmy. You think of the thousands and thousands of children that she must have seen mm. in all the years she was in nursery and early years education. And she'd say, Jimmy, oh, yes, that was a family that lived in Wheatstone. I remember him. Um, and uh, it was lovely to be able to correspond with somebody who remembered me from three and then was yes. remembering me probably, I think, in my 50s, possibly even into my early 60s. And uh, I think her son wrote to me not long ago as well, I think just before I got ill. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm in touch with the forces. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, lovely story. And then uh, obviously you said you moved around a bit. So again, like the, the move to the other schools subsequently, I mean, what, what was that like? Again, did you have sort of good, funny memories there or, or sort of things that stand in, out? Indeed, yes. I mean, the reason why I was at Tyneholm Nursery was because my mum was doing what was called emergency training. So she had uh, done the equivalent of O-levels, I think mm. it was called matric in her days matriculation in the, in the 30s. And so she was picking up a coach to take her to the little Gadsden emergency teacher training place. This is straight after the war. Um, so that's what she was doing. That's why I was at Tyneholm in Wealdstone. And then Pinner Wood was the nearest primary school to where we lived in the middle of Pinner. And I can remember nursery there. That was Mrs. Perkins in the nursery. And I can remember Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hurst and Miss Howlett. Those were my teachers. At, um, at Pinner Wood, and I can mm. remember some of my friends, some of whom, believe it or not, I'm still in touch with. Uh, I've, I wrote to John Hill from my class. Yeah. Uh, only the other day, he became a pilot for British Airways, and we occasionally drop each other lines. And um, yes, I can remember my teachers. I was, loved Mrs. Perkins. I loved Mrs. Hurst and Miss Thomas. Miss Howlett, I thought, I remember thinking she was a bit strict. Mm. I found that a bit tough going. Yes. Um, there was also another teacher, Mrs. Nimmo, who taught my brother with a Scots accent. I couldn't understand. <laughs> brother said how wonderful she was, and I kept saying, well, I don't understand what she's saying. Anyway, um, and the head teacher was Miss Stafford, and Miss Stafford was a great believer in Bible stories. And um, she used to tell the Bible stories once a week on what was Scripture Day or something like that. And the way she told them was she had a blackboard and coloured chalks. And she would pace up and down in front of the school and tell the story of Joseph and his coloured coat and um, Jacob and, and so on and Moses and the Promised Land and all this sort of stuff, all the stories, nearly always from the Old Testament. And she drew them 
on the board. She drew the seven plagues. She drew um, Joseph's coloured dream coat, as it were, as it was in the musical, of course. And I remember taking all the coloured chalks out of the box in order to, you know, draw his coloured coat. Mm. I remember thinking, wow, I would love to be able to do that. And on one occasion, she was busy drawing on the blackboard and she turned around and she said, Michael. And I was sitting there somewhere near the front row. I must have been in what we now call year one, first year. She said, Michael, what's the matter with you? Have you got ants in your pants? And the whole school burst into laughing. You know, and I yeah. just remember from then on, I had this phrase, ants in your pants, in my head. And, you know, kiddies, other kiddies used to come up to me and go, have you got ants in your pants? And I remember being quite angry about it, but of course it was very funny. And you'd be pleased to know it made its way into a poem of mine. Mm. Um, don't put mustard in the custard. One of the lines is, don't put ants in your pants, which children, of course, find funny to this day. So I quite, <laughs> quite enjoy it. That, you know, 71 years ago, a head teacher yes. said to me, um, yeah, have you got ants in your pants? And I've incorporated it into a poem, which I, you know, I tell when I yeah. go and do shows to this day. That's lovely. So, uh, so yes, there was that. And then there was one day that was very strange. They had to close the school. I think it was probably because the radiators failed. It's usually that, isn't it? <laughs> and um, uh, they said, is anybody at home? And I said, no, because mum was teaching by then, you see, and my dad was teaching. So, but I had a key and I could remember her turning to the deputy head. I remember her name as well, Miss, Miss Smith, um, who had the most amazing perm in the 50s. Women sometimes had straight hair all the way down and then they curled the edges up. So it sort of looked like a kind of, tablecloth that was rolled up mm. around the edges. I used to stare at this and wonder what held it all together. Anyway, they gave me some money to go to the Old Oak Tea Rooms in Pinner High Street. So I remember going to old, the Old Oak Tea Rooms in Pinner High Street and ordering myself meat and two veg with gravy and um, a ste a steam pudding afterwards. And uh, I remember when I went home, mum came home and she said, have you been at home for long? And I said, yeah. She said, and I told her how I'd gone home and had lunch. And um, I seem to remember she was a little bit cross that I was allowed home all on mm. my own because I was younger than seven, you see. Wow. So, uh, and I'd walked about a mile because Pinner Wood to my home was just short of a mile. So I'd done that, taken myself to the old oak tea rooms, ordered myself that meal and come home again. And I remember mum thinking, hmm, something wrong, a bit wrong with that. But anyway, there you are, that was the 50s. Yeah, that's a story, story from another era, isn't it? Mm, mm. I feel I must ask, really, in a way, do you think, what, what was it like in that era, like just after the war? You know, do you remember that in school, you know, was, was it still being affected by rationing? You know, were meals quite light? I mean, or was there anything like that around it? I don't remember that. Rationing, I can remember for sweets. Mm. So I think rationing came off sweets in either 1950 or 51. So I was four or five then, um, born in 46, as I say. Mm. So um, I think school meals, I generally, I absolutely adored them. I really, really did, uh, particularly in the next school, so I'll tell you in a moment. Mm. Um, but uh, no, the, the main thing, the overriding feeling I had about that era is that some teachers were quite anxious. They were anxious about whether their school would succeed because everything led to the apex of the 11 plus exam in those days mm. and schools were rated on the basis of the number of kids they got through to go to grammar school and i think a lot of that was done without any 
reference to what the kid's background was. So if a school scored low, that meant they were a bad school. And if they scored high, they, got, they, they were a good school. So it was not on any basis of what, what we now call cultural capital that the children mm. brought to the school, brought to their schooling. Um, and so uh, there was some nervousness around. And um, the people were very anxious about the way we did our worksheets and all the rest of it. I mean, that's why it rings so many bells when I see this going on now with SATs. Mm. Um, even though, you know, in many areas there isn't the 11 plus, though there isn't some. Um, so that's one feeling I have. And of course, the, the other thing was that they did beat us in those days. Mm. And indeed, my dear brother, who was really one of the most well-behaved kids, I mean, it was just absurd. He came home with bruises all down his legs. And my mum went up to school and complained to the teacher who did it. I mean, I got the cane, but he'd, he'd been slippered mm. on his legs. And... Um, terrible that would have been well he would have left that school in about 52 so um 1952 he's four years older than me um perhaps 51 he left i'm not quite sure one or the other uh 52 i can't do my sums ah 53 he would have sorry i'll get there in the end he would have <laughs> left that primary school in 1953 and yes. he was coming home aged about 10 52 or 53 with bruised legs mm. and uh it was the, the the worst that my brother would have done would have been chatting I can't believe he would have done anything else. And um, my mum went up and complained about it. Um, so there we are. That gives you a little taste of what we were up to. Yes. I can remember with Miss Howlett, to be honest, though, even though I, I, I didn't really like her very much, and I did love those other teachers a lot, um, it was Miss Howlett doing poems with us. And I can remember us going round the class and one boy reciting Autumn Fires by Robert Louis Stevenson. And then I think Miss Howlett teaching us that poem from Shakespeare about when, when icicles grow by the wall. I think that's how it goes. And, and uh, somebody uh, blows their nails in order to make their hands warm. And Greasy Joan doth keel the pot. So there we are. There's a little poem that uh, I can remember with Miss Howlett. And mm. that, that was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So you said um, school meals and you said the, the next school. Is that, you mean the next primary school that you're talking about there? That's it. We transferred. They opened up West Lodge uh, School in 1954 when I was... Uh, Seven, I think. I think that's right. I think yes, that's right. I think it was seven. Just possibly just going on eight. Anyway, I've got my date slightly wrong, but anyway. So they opened up West Lodge, and I was a founder pupil in what was then second year juniors. Mm. So uh, they'd opened up school a bit earlier for the infants, and so I had Miss Goodall for two years, and then Miss Williams. And Miss Goodall, I can remember very well. We were in classes of forty-eight children, around about forty-eight or fifty of us, in wow. rows, in desks, in pairs. And I can remember all sorts of things with Miss Goodall. One of my favourite memories of her is her reading us Emil and the Detectives, which is a lovely, lovely book, which remains my favourite to this day. And I've even done a Guardian podcast about Emil and the Detectives, following in Emil's footsteps in Berlin. And uh, that's a, a very special memory mm. um, of Emil and absolutely adoring the book. And I've read it to at least two of my children. Who, who adored it similarly. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely, lovely book. And I can remember Miss Goodall reading that to us. And I think in the end she emigrated. I think she emigrated to, to Canada. I've got yeah. pictures of her. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was Miss Goodall for two years. We had her so for, from uh, second to third year juniors. Right. And I've, I've noticed here, obviously, all the teachers you mentioned thus far are all women. I mean, is that just a coincidence? Or do you think that, again, is that a hangover from the war, do you think, in that, there just weren't as many men around to be in those posts at that point. Or they were still, women had had to step up and be teachers during the war and had just continued to be so afterwards. 
uh, offhand, I can only remember one man teacher at that first primary school, none at the nursery, one man at the first primary, and in the second, I can only see two in my mind, Mr. Barnes and Mr. Baggs, Mr. Baggs who took us for football, Mr. Barnes who took us for music, and all the rest were women. As I say, the women teachers, um, some of them were trained like my mum in mm. emergency training. And it was an 18-month emergency training, and, and they gave them a teaching certificate at the end of it. Um, and so there were teachers all through my childhood who had that training, particularly for primary schools. I think secondaries, they were still asking for degrees, first degrees, you know, BA or BSc. Um, yeah, that's, that's the only way I can answer it. It's different mm. in secondary schools, but uh, primary schools, my two at any rate, were, you know, 95% women. Um, so yes, that's that's a good observation indeed. Mm. A final question on the primary school, and then we'll, we'll move up to the sort of secondary uh, sector. But you obviously have very clear memories of this, and do you think that helps with the books you've written throughout your career? That because you can sort of remember what it was like to be a child, you can get into that mindset, sort of recall it, and it sort of helps you be able to write for a young a young reader. That is it. I mean, that is exactly what I do. Yeah. I, I recall, recapitulate, rerun, replay hundreds of these experiences with friends, with teachers, with uh, people in my family. I remember things people saying. I can remember their expressions. I can remember where we are. And I recall those and I retell them when I'm going into schools now. Um, and also I change them and distort them for fun. I exaggerate them. I teach children hyperbole. Mm. And I say how we had a teacher who was so strict who weren't allowed to breathe in her lessons and I've got a whole no breathing poem that I do and then I explain what hyperbole is and how you know, Homer and Shakespeare used hyperbole and here's me trying to do the same thing mm. and how they can as well. Um, so yes, it, it all connects. And um, yeah, I mean, I can remember that primary school, so many things about it. And I go back to both these schools, by the way, I should say that. Mm. I do go back to them. They ask me back. I won't go back to foundation days and, um, and other things. I did a Zoom call back to my old primary school just before... Um, no, after I was ill. Yes, no, I did it uh, earlier this year, I think. So, uh, yeah, I, get, I go to the schools um, and, um, you know, I'm always fascinated by looking at the playground and the field and the school hall and seeing what's the same and what's different. Yeah. And I tell the children when I go to the school, I tell them, oh, I sat here, I sat in this desk and, you know, and this is where I was naughty and this is where I got sent out and, you know, and this is, see this sink here? Well, I can remember there were piles of atlases for some reason. I was sitting in the sink. The sink wasn't being used. Um, and so on, you know, and I yeah. tell them stories like that. And, um, yeah, somebody put up a picture. In fact, oh, yes, the, te the head teacher of that school was a man, was Mr. Scotney. And um, somebody put up a picture of him not long ago on one of those uh, Facebook pages like Memories of Pinner or something mm. like that. And a great cluster of people bunged up. Oh, I remember Mr. Scotney. I remember Mr. Scotney. Um, so, yeah, um, indeed. So Mr. Yes. Scotney was quite interesting because I thought he was Sir Malcolm Sargent. It may not mean much to you, you're quite young, but Sir Malcolm Sargent was this conductor, mm. very famous conductor, often on the telly, smooth back black hair and quite a high forehead. And Mr. Scotney actually resembled him quite a lot. So you'd watch the telly and see Sir Malcolm Sargent conducting an orchestra and then think, oh, it's Mr. Scotney conducting an orchestra. <laughs> and uh, he had brown suede shoes, which, was, uh, which also had rather clicky-clacky Souls. So there was a combination of him click clacking down the corridor and these brown suede shoes, which were very rare mm. in the teaching profession. You know, people thought, mm, it's not got polished shoes, it's got brown suede shoes. Um, and he always carried an umbrella, even in summer. He used it as a kind of sort of walking stick. So mm. you'd see him with this umbrella, quite a grand sort of bloke, really. Yeah, and that was Mr. Scott, who was the head teacher. 
Yes. And then Miss Williams, in the last year of primary school, it did all get very, very serious, very, very testy, very, very 11 plus in that, um, in that last year. I, I don't look at it that year very fondly. Mm. It was full of testing, full of being moved around the class in your class position. I found maths very, very worrying. I couldn't really do it. So though I liked English, I couldn't do maths. And so I was thinking I won't go to grammar school where my brother was. And I uh, was only relieved of that when mum went up for open day, for teachers, for parents open day. And Mr. Scotney reassured my mum that I had hit teacher's recommendation, mm -hmm. which in those days rather cheatingly overrided whatever you did in your exam. So I have a kind of lasting thought that my very best friend, Brian Harrison, probably got round about the same marks as I did, but he went to SecMod and I went to grammar. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure, you know, just in my mind, my gut feeling is that. And I went because, you know, I had educated parents who were teachers and um, Harry Bow's dad was a, well, he was a builder and um, his mum was the lollipop lady. And maybe they thought they, they did it almost on kind of class terms, mm. or sort of, uh, well, again, on cultural capital terms, that I had the cultural capital to do well at grammar school and somehow or other, Brian didn't, you know. Mm. Um, Brian, my friend, that is, as opposed to my brother, Brian. Um, so that, that's a, one of the feelings I have. I mean, I haven't got any way of proving that. It's yes. just a sense that we used to sit more or less in exactly the same place, given that we had these positions in class, which was always round about 20th in the class of 48. So there wasn't much to choose between us in terms of our ability to do these tests. But, you know, as I say, he went one way and I went the other. And I remember yes. him coming to school on the day of our results and him saying, it's okay, Mick. Him saying, I knew this would happen. I remember feeling so sad that he mm. would go to one school and I would go to another. I just remember feeling just desolate looking at his face. Uh, and he was, you know, being cheery and nice about it. Yes. Yes, there does sound very emotional, actually, the way you describe it there. And he's sort of putting a, putting a brave face on it all. So, so obviously you, you did go to the grammar school and with head teacher's recommendation. So um, where was that? And then again, you know, he was clearly have good memories of it. I'm guessing, and, and any sort of good teachers that stand out, or interesting events that happened, or trips that you went on, or anything like that. Indeed, yes. So I went to two grammar schools again, two schools because I went to Harrowfield for the first five years and half a term, and then we moved, and we moved near to Watford, and so I moved to Watford Boys Grammar School. So two grammar schools to remember. Harrowfield was a mixed county grammar school in the London borough of Harrow. Um, and people may not know, but they weren't just grammar schools. Grammar schools were, in fact, tiered. There was, in fact, a sort of micro-league table. So not only did they select children by 11 plus, but there was also a sense in which the grammar schools themselves, so Harrow County, people might know of Harrow County, it's where Michael Pantillo went, a bit younger than me. So I knew his older brother at my school. And then there were these grammar schools that were regarded as not quite so good. And I'm not quite sure what that reputation was based on, why people did this, but that was always the, the talk of the town, if you like. So I was at Harrowfield County, which was regarded not as great or as brilliant or as wonderful as Harrow County, though my dad had taught at school and, I, and he knew some of my teachers. So there was a kind of slightly funny thing. And my brother, four years older than me, was already at the school. So I remember coming to the school and feeling that I was kind of putting on clothes, putting on old clothes in a way that... The PE teacher, the French teacher, the German teacher, the RI, as we used to call it, RE teacher, um, they had all taught with my dad. Oh, and indeed, Merlin Rees, who went on to become Home Secretary, was then history teacher, I think had been taught by my dad. Mm. Um, 
So there was a sense that this place was kind of familiar, was kind of home. And then you've got to remember that if you've got an older brother or sister, they've come home for the previous two, three, four years or whatever with stories. My brother's a great mimic, so he could imitate most of the teachers. So I had takeoffs of teachers before I even got to the school. <laughs> so, for example, we had a PE teacher who was Swiss and he had fought in the Spanish Civil War and was very, very Spartan, to put it mildly, and felt that, you know, somewhere or other, the first thing that should happen to us on a freezing cold day was um, run up Harrowe- I ran up to Harrowheel Common, you know, in a vest and a pair of shorts. Um, and he didn't run anywhere. He was quite old and he would drive along by the side of the road with a megaphone sticking out of his window and shouting yeah. in his Swiss accent. Pick up those great flat feet, lady. What, what, what think you do? What think you like, pick up those flat feet. And he'd be shouting at us like this. But I knew that before I even got to school. Yes. So when he started doing it, I remember just weeping with laughter <laughs> and coming home and saying to my brother, you know, when we, we, his nickname was Hoppy. Uh, he was called Mr. Hawtree, but his original name had been Halptife. And uh, that's how my dad knew him. And um, he was, uh, how can I put it? He had sort of two personalities. One which was this really terrifying shouting uh, thing about, you know, what think you do? You want to end up on the, on the street corner with a begging bowl in the hand? Mm-hmm. You know, and he would scream and shout at us like this. And then suddenly he'd kind of turn on this weird sort of smoochy thing with kids who he thought were good at sport. And you'd say, well, Mike, you know, we, uh, we hope you do very well at the, the cross-country and, uh, you know, we think that you're doing well. Or he referred to my dad and said, of course, your father knows my war record and all that. It was kind of really quite difficult in its own way. And yeah. it was also very, very unsympathetic for kids who had things like asthma. Mm. So it was, uh, or he felt were somehow or other too sort of soft-skinned, you know, were, were you know, didn't want to... Uh, rush out into the freezing cold, you know. Um, yeah. So that was one one memory um, of many, many. I've written about all this, by the way, in a book that I did autobiography called So They Think, um, So They Call You Pisha, uh, a book about some of this. Mm. Um, many teachers, French, English, uh, if it, you know, if we're talking about favourite teachers, I suppose most of my favourite teachers taught me English. There was Barry Brown, um, who was a breath of fresh air in that school. I mean, it was a suburban school of the 50s and 60s and very much affected by this sort of anxiety that grammar schools had to kind of conform in order to try and make the grade. So there was a very sort of, there was a sort of damp hand of conformity that, that existed in school with a few mm. eccentrics that were really quite remarkable, like Mr. Halfpenny, otherwise known as Shove, you'll be pleased to know. Yes. As in Shove Hapney, of course. <laughs> Uh, who was a wonderful eccentric. I mean, I remember him bursting through the door on one occasion and uh, the door slammed behind him and he fell to his knees and raised his hands in the air and went, ah, they've come for me. And um, the door, sorry, I missed out, the door had sort of bounced open. It had slammed, but it bounced open because the lock was wrong. So there he was sobbing on the floor going, they've come for me. And we all looked at him and he went, sorry, don't worry, boys. Good boys and girls, just one of mine. And he was like that. He would do yeah. mad, mad acts like that. Um, and, um, but Barry Brown was interesting because he basically wanted to be an actor. He taught us English. And um, in fact, much later, he went on to be an, run an actor's agency. And when he died, um, someone knew that I had known him at school and I helped write his obit uh, for The Times because mm. uh, he was quite well known. He had some quite good actors on his, um, on his books. But as a teacher, I mean, he used to, well, I mean, here's one thing, I was unthinkable perhaps these days, but he used to sit in those kind of 
Edwardian chairs that they had with his feet up on the desk. And we'd read, say, round the class reading Shakespeare and he'd be sitting there with his feet up on the desk, holding the book up in the air, waving to us. And, okay, Rosen, you read bottom. Go on, off you go. You know, you're a donkey by now, you know, Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. And he was from Manchester, so he had quite a strong Manchester accent, which was, you know, new to us in the London suburbs. You know, Mm. how dare somebody have a Manchester (laughs) accent, you know. Outrageous. So that was, he was very, uh, like I say, a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Um, I had a teacher, an English teacher called Mrs. Turnbull, who came from Northern Ireland, actually. And the first time she came, we couldn't figure out what her accent was. I remember her sitting there going, where's she from? Mm. Somebody said Ireland. That's not an Irish accent, because the Northern Irish accent was very rare Mm. in London in in the 50s. And we'd never heard it. So, you know, all the vowels seemed to be in the wrong places, you know. And we used to call her Mrs. Her name was Mrs. Turnbull, and we used to call her Mrs. Trumbull because it sort of was a, yeah. a kind of tribute to the fact that her, she turned the vowels round. And she, to be fair to her, I mean, to be nice to her, she, she would say, Michael, you're going to be a writer. Mm. And she almost said this to me, almost every essay or composition, as we used to call it in those days, everyone I turned in and she would say, she'd put on the bottom or she'd say to me face to face, you're going to be a writer. And I thought at that stage, I think I thought, well, it's a nice thing for her to say, but I sort of vaguely thought she might have been soft soaping me. But um, I put her in the in the book of reasons, partly why, how, why I became a writer, mm. because she definitely sat there and said over and over again, you know, you're yeah. you're going to be a writer, Michael, which was a lo- lovely thing for her to say. Yes, that is that is lovely, isn't it? And to sort of her to obviously spot that that talent that you did have and that ability, and then sort of just just push you on it, and like I say, just and something just sticks in your mind from that. That's lovely. Um, Obviously, amazing memories here of teachers. And I feel like yeah, maybe that's the last question of school and then we'll come on to your new book as well, which is another nice thing we're going to talk about. Uh, did you get to go on school trips at that time, you know, abroad or anywhere out of, the, out of the region or was that still not really possible at that point just because of the time and effort yeah. budgets and things like let, that? Let me, let me just have a think. Yeah, no, my brother went to Switzerland on a geography field trip. I think the people who mostly got away were the people who did geography. There was a very, very brilliant geography department. In fact, I was signing books in Seven Oaks. The woman came up to me and she said, yes, it was like that, Michael. I looked at her and I thought, she said, I've read your autobiography. And in the autobiography, I told a story about this geography teacher who used to be called Miss Searle and Mr. Brown, who I've already mentioned, were having a thing. And we were in, I was in and they were in the Merchant of Venice with the Hatch End players, not school play, but around the corner from the school. And they were having a thing. And I think Mr. Brown's eyes strayed and Miss Searle was was playing Portia in the Merchant of Venice and her assistant is called Nerissa. And for one reason or another, Mr. Brown, who was playing Bassanio, who was supposed to fall in love with Portia, in actual fact, um, offstage, as it were, fell in love with Nerissa instead. So I'd written about this in quite a jokey way. And now here was Miss Searle, 60 years later or something, standing in front of me going, I had got it right. And I went, my goodness, it's Miss Searle. And she said, well, I'm not, I'm not called that now. And she said, it was like that. And I did break off the engagement. I remember thinking, oh, God. <laughs> I said, do you mind that I wrote about it? She said, no, no, not at all, not at all. And she was utterly fun and was all yeah. that. So anyway... So I'd written about that, the, the thing with Miss Searle and Mr. Brown, which, of course, we all giggled and stood about <laughs> behind their backs, of course. Yes. Um, yes. So I'm trying to think of school trips that I went on. They were mostly day trips. Oh. Although my brother, as I say, went on this uh, geography field trip with Miss Searle and Mr. Carney uh, to uh, the Jungfrau, as I remember it. 
uh, in Switzerland. So I'm afraid I only experienced that one by proxy. Mm. Um, but my very last day at secondary school, uh, at that school, sorry, before I went to Watford, um, was in fact a day trip to Coventry and Stratford-on-Avon. And we couldn't get into the theatre in Stratford, so we watched Arms and the Man at Coventry. We went round the cathedral, went to Stratford, rode on the river and came home. So that was a lovely day trip. And it was the, the way I said goodbye to that mm. year of, of students. I did go into the sixth form for half a term, but it was the sort of end of an era. And that was a sort of interesting way to close off uh, that, that era because it had been very emotional in all sorts of ways. Mm. Um, partly because of the group of kids I was with. There was a group of us who I call the surrealists. There was a group of us who were very inventive and funny around music and acts and doing shows and writing stuff. And uh, that was the sort of the end of it. It all came to an end at that point because we all went off in separate directions. Mm. Yeah, well, some lovely memories there. And like I said, that, that does have a very nice day out. You know, like I said, a nice marking the end of an era of, of, a, of a friendship group. Obviously, as I said, we're going to talk about your new book as well, which has got the wonderful title of um, Sticky Muck Stick Stick, The Friend Who Helped Me Walk Again. Um, I've been lucky enough to see um, see it laid out and the illustrations. But again, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and where it came from and the inspiration for it, what, what you're hoping to get across again for any reader, really, but I suppose for children too, particularly? Yes. Well, um, I was ill last year. I got COVID and it got very serious. So they uh, put me into a coma for 40 days. And then I had some time recovering just in an ordinary ward. And then they sent me to a rehabilitation hospital. Now, I went to the rehabilitation hospital because I couldn't stand up and I couldn't walk. And so I was quite bewildered and muddled and a bit befugged um, with all the drugs that they'd put in me to kind of get me to sleep and so on. Mm. And uh, I made friends with a stick, with my NHS stick, and basically learned how to walk with it. And it's very transformative, isn't it? If you think about it, you're lying in bed, you don't know quite where you are or why you're there, then you, they send you off to another hospital. And then from thinking that you're the kind of person that's going to be a person walking around with a Zimmer frame or a person who's going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of their life or even with a stick for the rest of their life, you, you find that you're helped to be back to something like the way you were before. And each stage is, is kind of remarkable. And I remember tweeting about it and people finding it very funny that I'd called the stick, sticky stick, stick, somewhere from the inner recesses in my mind, thinking uh, about boating with boat face, I suppose. Yes. And, um, and, uh, and people had tweeted and said how lovely it was that, you know, I'd sort of come round, I'd come back from the land of the dead, as I put it. And um, so uh, uh, I suddenly thought, well, this is a, a nice story to tell. Mm. And then as I do with things, I, I, if I think it's a nice story to tell, I just wonder whether a children's publisher or some other publisher would be interested. So that's what I did. And I sent it off and they said, oh, absolutely. Goodness me, yes. And suddenly, almost as the way I talked about it mm. uh, to people in the stages in which I, I've talked about it to you, um, the words just flowed down. And then they found the wonderful Tony Ross, who I've done a variety of books with, who said that he wanted to do the pictures. And he's, uh, you know, matched the, or added to the humor. Mm. Um, so it isn't just a sort of dreary, you know, and then, and then I had a stick sort of thing. He sort of made it so that it, you could, you could see that people helping me, the physios and occupational therapists and nurses and so on, 
and, uh, and me sort of discovering myself in a very jokey, spiky sort of a way. Mm. And um, so then that's, that's the way the book's come about. And as it happens, it reminds me of something that happened at my second secretary school, which is I got knocked down in the road on the way home from that school. Mm. Um, and so I, I got knocked down, was in hospital for 10 weeks, but I spent two of those weeks at Garston Rehabilitation Centre. So right. that was another experience of my second secondary school where I had to learn how to stand up and walk uh, uh, just again. So there was a whole sort of sense of deja vu about it, mm. going all the way back to my school days at my second school. Right, yeah, that is interesting. And um, as you said, the, the illustrations are, are, are a wonderful accompaniment to the text as well, which is a lovely sort of, Sort of nice sort of slate, very simple, but nice flow to it. And it just draws you through it. And, you know, did you write, you said you also you contacted publishers and children's publishers again. So did you, did it feel like, given what we've all been through the pandemic and children, the disrupted education, disrupted, you know, family lives, so forth. Did, did it feel like a, a nice story to tell for that, from that perspective? You know, it's something, a point of a story of, you know, how you do have to find help and you have to grow and learn again and, and build yourself up sometimes. And that's how it could be adapted, let's say, for a younger audience. All those things, yes, that's right. I mean, we've got the word recovery, a word that, you know, me and you might say as adults and by and large don't. We tell children about recovering and so on, yes. Mm. But, uh, but all those other words you've just used there about, you know, coming around the corner, getting better, uh, feeling better, mm. um, looking for help, finding help. Um, so, yes, I think it's got all those things in the story. And then also I think there's something about... For, I think, I've, I think of a book like that, a bit like my book that's called The Sad Book, that it's for any age of person to think about how we are. So here is an older person, me, and they've got ill and they're struggling to make an improvement. So on the one hand, it might speak to the child as a child who's been ill, but on the other hand, maybe they are with people like their parents, grandparents, great uncles, aunts, whatever, mm. and they can see the, the kinds of struggle, maybe... Granddad goes to hospital, grandma goes to hospital, and they say, oh, God, my back hurts and I can't, I can't come to the park with you, but, mm. you know, can you bring the stick or I've got to wear, have a crutch for a bit. And so that whole state of being, I hope that in the book I've sort of shown them. I mean, I can't think of many other books that show people helping themselves with sticks. I don't mean you don't see people with a stick, but that it's actually about... Mm. having a stick or having a wheelchair as part of a process and a part of living. So, you know, often we talk about children's books, who do they show, who they don't show. We talk about people of colour not being in children's books, people with disabilities and so on. All these are quite legitimate. And then after I'd written it, I thought, oh, well, that's quite interesting. It's not that I feel in any way oppressed or marginalised, far from it. Um, but it's interesting that in terms of children's breadth of experience and what's available for them in books, then in a way, this is something that they may not have seen. And given that many children do know me and know who I am. Mm. And, and, oh, well, look, you see, there's Michael Rosen and he, he's, had to, he's had to learn how to walk. So it's a, it's a, it might be a new-ish experience for, for children and overlap with things in their own lives. Yes. Yeah, and that all makes a lot of sense that you're right. Anything like that that helps open their eyes and understanding of it, that it's, well, it's like I say, it's normal if their grandparents or, or even their parents are sort of struggling with an illness and getting better from it. That's... That's what happens, you know, and, and like you said, your story, your story sort of showed them that can be, it's a good thing and it can be funny and it can be, yeah, there can be difficult moments, but it's, it's all for the greater good. And, and that obviously ties in as well, I think, with some of your work in a way to with the Empathy Lab, which, you know, you're sort of doing some work with them 
around the book? Because you said the book's out on the 4th of November. I believe that's right. Um, just a few days after transmission of this podcast. And I say you're doing work with Empathy Lab as well to promote that a little bit, some of the work you've done again with them as well. Yes, that's right. Empathy Lab asked me to work with them and ask me about how books can help with empathizing. I mean, empathy is a long word for saying, you know, seeing things from other people's point of view, isn't it? Mm. And then part of empathy might be sympathy, but also antipathy. So you have to think about why are people antipathetic towards others? Why are they sympathetic? And how do we develop empathy? So all these ideas around what it is really is what makes us human is that is our contact with other people and how we make and do things and build societies. You know, whether we're in groups or bigger than a group, you know, whether we're in a, a region or a whole country or whatever it is, uh, or indeed ultimately in the world. So empathy is crucial. And I think the Empathy Lab is wonderful because it's actually discussing the cement. You know, if each one of us is a brick, empathy is, is discussing what's sticking the bricks together, and that mm. is empathy. And, um, you know, there are many ways to do it. It might be by listening to a piece of music, seeing a play, a film, going dancing with other people. But books are a fantastically powerful way because if you think the process of many books, particularly fiction, is you walk in other people's shoes or the way Philip Pullman, the writer Philip Pullman put it, it's as if the hero in the story or even some of the other characters are holding your hand and taking you through adventures, obstacles, friendships, disasters, um, feelings of misery, feelings of hope, and they're taking you with, taking you with them. And I like that image. So it's either in the hero's shoes or, as Philip says, holding, holding the hero's hand. Mm. And, um, you know, this, this generates empathy. It, it makes you discuss empathy. It makes you think about it. It makes you think about other people, thinking about how the world looks from someone else's point of view. And we know what the opposite of it is. The opposite of it is the pathological state of mind where you really do not care a damn about anybody else mm. other than yourself, maybe not even possibly about yourself, you know, form kind of nihilistic depression. So we know that's the opposite. And then there are degrees between a lot of empathy and none at all. And so this is all a very interesting area to explore. Mm. And again, and the book, like you say, does a nice job of that, doesn't it? Because it helps you start to empathize with the, the character or you in this instance and, and what you went through and what it took to get back to people walking again and you know again just sort of seeing that thing right that what that what must have that been like you know and help helping get children but as anyone really to sort of go through that process maybe someone else who's sort of having to learn to walk again and finding that tough and finding it because i mean you must have moments when you did you presumably you must have felt quite sort of the angry sounds a bit true but like god you know i don't want to be doing this i'm I, I was fit and, and well and having to learn that well this is where you are right now and i've got to get on with it Mm, all of those emotions and also um, the emotion that this is the state I'd be in forevermore. Mm. So at each step, so when I was given the frame, I thought, ah, came into my mind, there was a guy in our neighbourhood who had a wheelie zimmer, you know, who moved the zimmer along uh, with a little electric pulse on it, I think. And I thought, oh, so I'm going to be like him. And then when I got into the wheelchair, I thought, oh, fine, okay, well, I'm a wheelchair person. Now, how are we going to manage that? And I started thinking about ramps at home mm. and so on. Um, maybe we'd have to open this is a double door thing. That would we, how would I get from, oh, yeah, but how would I get from the front to the back? We've got little steps down. Um, and then uh, when I had the stick, I thought, well, that's bearable. You know, I can remember my dad having a stick. And I remember Emma saying, as my wife, saying to me, um, you're not coming home with a stick. And I, I remember thinking, what? 
That means I've got to walk from the ambulance into the door. And at the moment, I'm only up to about 10 steps. So I remember making in the last few days like a big, big effort to get to 40 steps, to 50 steps, so that I could walk through the door holding the stick horizontally instead of vertically, uh, or maybe not even at all. I remember thinking that through. So yes, it's, these things are all at, we're all at stages. And um, I did have a sort of resignation impulse in me, which said, I'm not going to get better than this, am I? But the physios, the people in uh, St. Pancras Rehab, they were, how can I put it, insistent, ruthless, single-minded, all, I mean these in very positive terms, mm. in telling me that I was going to get there and I would and that I shouldn't give up. And um, I, I owe them an awful lot because there was a bit of inbuilt passivity in me that thought, well, so that's what I am, you know, mm. you know big deal. You know, it doesn't matter. They weren't having it. And I like that. It's lovely. Yeah, no, that's, that's a lovely point to raise well I said the work that they did with you nice that we mentioned them because obviously like you say clearly very important um, but yeah there's some lovely stuff there and I say we should mention so the book Sticky Muck Stick Stick I don't think anyone's going to forget that title um, in a hurry and that's out on the 4th of November which again is a few days after this podcast and interviews is in the magazine so I'm sure people will be looking out for that and I'm sure it'll be doing good stuff for, for people of all ages as we've talked about and you know otherwise thank you so much for all your memories of school days I think you know, putting this delicately, I think you're the person who've gone furthest back in time with of school memories and you possibly have the clearest memories of the most things, the most teachers, the most incidents of anyone I've interviewed today for this series, So that's, which is fantastic. And I can tell you, we've hardly scratched the surface. I could have done that, gone on for hours and we yes. didn't even really talk about what for boys, which is totally engraved in my mind because what a shock it was because I was arrived in a sort of posh boys grammar school. Yes. It was utterly different from Harrow Wheel. But never mind, another day. Yes, we'll have you back on for part two and delve just purely on that topic. Yes, like you say, we, we could talk for a lot longer. But no, everything you've shared has been so interesting and I'm sure people really have enjoyed listening and get a kick out of it and say the book sounds great. I'm sure a lot of people will be get, get a lot out of that too. So thank you so much. Thank you.